0: We're going to read two brief passages. The first one will be in John, the 18th chapter. We'll start in verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. Please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1 and we'll read the first three verses. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things through, through whom also he created the world He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. You may be seated. Thank
1: you, Pastor Denny. Joy to serve with you. You know, what do you think, if you, you can keep your fingers open at the John 18 passage, what do you think you get when you ask people why did Jesus come? You know, you ask an average person; they know something about Jesus in Christmas time, and I. It seems to me that most people, you know, they're not uh, thinking biblically. Would w- really seem to think that whatever God's doing, uh, it must be to make them happy. Um, that really any discourse about God, any time that we would think about God, must be uh, centered on us and all this must mean that, uh, you know, I should reach self-actualization, and the second that I'm not happy or I have any kind of, um, you know, disappointment in life, then God must not be real and kind of out he goes. You said, you know, is God really what he's done in Jesus? Is it really all about me? Others, I think, you know, is Jesus just a model of a kind of social reformer? Uh, Did he come to teach us about politics and about economics. Some people think that, say, so, well, we you know, follow his example in these areas. We've got to sort it out. You sort it out by following Jesus as an example. Others find in Jesus, uh, you know, somewhat of a, a, a figure that roots for the underdog. You know, he was this uh, peasant, a forgotten guy, and he rose up to fame, and there's a, a bit of that in every one of us, the person who's downtrodden, and in Jesus we see an example of somebody who can really make it and rise up in life. You know, I think still others, they see Jesus as, you know, merely a mere social reformer or whatever. Was all kinds of ideas as you talk to people. Why did Jesus came? And it got me thinking to say, what about does Jesus say explicitly um, what he came to do? And there are several instances that are not contradictory, but there's a lot of uh, correct answers. All those ones I just gave you, really incorrect answers. All I think Jesus being so significant informs our politics and our economics and our sociology, of course, but let's take a moment, I'm just going to look at three and then to our passage of study, but you'd be right to say, and you don't have to flip to these, you can just listen, but Mark chapter 10 and verse 45, um, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's Jesus saying, I came not to be served, but to serve the people that I'm ministering to and ultimately to give my life as a ransom for many. So there's those who say, well, there's something there about the cross. What does it mean that Jesus would give his life as a ransom for many? What could that possibly mean except that he gave his life for us on the cross? So those would be correct answers. Jesus came to serve and he came to give his life as a ransom for many, those of those, his people. Now, one that often, this is now in Luke's gospel, so Jesus is speaking a different biographer and this one can get people very agitated, but you know, it's what Jesus says. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? Yeah, most of you, yeah. Ultimately, He will. No, I tell you, but rather division. So, those who know their Bibles well, if you would have said, well, why does Jesus come? One of the things He says out of not, I, I came actually to bring division. Well, well, what does He mean by that? Because Jesus. You see, when it comes to him, there's only two categories of people in our complex world. There's those who are dead and those who are alive. And when you come to faith in him, you cross from death to life. That's what he means there, that everybody's got to come to terms with who Jesus is, that he came not to bring peace, but division. Also, John's Gospel, chapter 10 and verse 10, a verse that I think is often abused, but nevertheless important. Jesus says, the thief, that is Satan, comes to... Steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So Jesus came to give his followers real life, not just biological life, breathing but rather to give us life and a full life, we could say, to use the old philosophical word, a life of flourishing. So all three answers would have been what Jesus tells us about why he came. I came to serve, came to give my life as a ransom for many. My name, by virtue of my coming, is going to divide people between those who are alive in Christ and those who are dead, and I've come to give my followers an abundant, full, and flourishing life. But none of those really today, just a more background to our passage, this amazing exchange between Jesus and the Roman governor, Pilate. Now, a quick, brief, you know, brief word here on Pilate that this man, the Roman procurator of Judea for about nine years, a couple words about Pilate. Um, we have non-biblical evidence of his existence, which, you know, again, the Bible anchored in history always. Uh, Pilate's right where we need him to be. During the stretch of time that we need him to be. In other words, that you have Pilate play such a prominent role in the execution of Jesus. If you have all the secular sources say, well, we have you know no record of Pilate, or maybe there's Pilate in the wrong time in the wrong place. Say, no, actually, Pilate is right where we need him to be, uh, as governor of Judea for about nine years, from something like the year 26 to the year 35. You know, there's Pilate, governor of Judea, by every estimation, a, a cruel man, not a particularly gifted man, uh, and in, and again, every he would have been. Probably forgotten, except for the rare Roman historians that I've just mentioned a few paragraphs, that Pilate would have been long forgotten had it not been for Jesus of Nazareth. Now, unfortunately for Pilate, uh, churches all over the globe, when we, with regularity, some even every week, we say the Apostles' Creed. You ever notice there's an interesting fact about the Apostles' Creed? Pilate makes it in. Crucified under Pontius Pilate, the man to whom the death of our Savior, at least in the creeds of the church, to whom it's attributed. And here we have this exchange, and you play the counterfactual game. You say, I wonder, had this gone a little bit differently for Pilate, uh, what that would have been like. But here's Jesus about to be delivered over in the passage that Denny read. So Pilate entered his headquarters again, right? They brought Jesus into him because only the Romans can execute. Are you the King of the Jews? Jesus answered, "Do you say this on your own accord, or did others tell, uh, say it uh, to, to to ask me about this?" See, Jesus questions the questioner. Pilate answered, "Am I a Jew? I don't know about these things. They're saying you're the anticipated Messiah. What's this mean to me? Your own nation and your chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done?" Jesus answered, "My kingdom is not of this world." If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, that is in the first place. But my kingdom is not from this world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. And Jesus answered, You say that I am a king, but here you go. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world. So here we go. You're on the edge of your seat, right? What's Christmas? What's going on here? why Jesus come? To bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. That Jesus came to bear witness to the truth, and he is so bold as to say that the words that he utters are the source of that truth. Now, all these passages that I just read, all four of them, there's a subtlety you might have glossed over that in and of itself, I think, is is rather staggering. And that is that the nature of Jesus saying, why I came, Points to his preexistence. Can you see that? I mean, why would you talk to anybody else? Say, well, you might, you know, kind of as a throwaway comment, say, you know, I was born for this. But we don't really mean, you know, I came into the world to do these hugely important things. But that's what Jesus says and points to his preexistence. That long ago, for all eternity, the personhood of Jesus, that is the second person of the Trinity, uh, existed, and he came into the world for specific purposes. One of those. Um, to bear witness to the truth and to give truth to people. So a couple of moves today, really, uh, just uh, you know, two, two, two broad sweeps and a, and a practical application. So firstly, um, there's such a thing as truth and it can be found. Say, so why is this so important? We have a very strange relationship with truth, don't we? Um, if you talk to people that this has really been in the ether for a long time now, but if you really break, break it down in a sustained conversation, that we've long kind of tossed out the idea of truth as being very restrictive. You know, if somebody says, well, I've got the, the true meaning of things, and this is the truth, or there's only one way, that we begin to kind of stir in our chairs and just say, who does this person think that they are, you know, telling me the way that it is? And we don't like major truth claims. And that's why... At least one philosopher, Don Cupid, who interestingly enough is is a clergyman. He's an atheistic clergyman. I remember hearing this in, in England. I was like, How, an atheistic clergyman. But there's more of those than you think. Um, Don Cupid said, "Capital T Truth is dead. Now, there's no such thing. It's been buried. It's really for um, you know a different time period. That none of us really hold that there's one way of doing things. That there's a right way and a wrong way. That all that's gone." And why I say there's a strange relationship with truth is that while we have been taught and while we bristle at truth claims because we feel they box us in, there's also a real longing to have some place to plant our feet. To have some way forward in this world to say, are there any non-negotiables, are there some things that I can really latch on to, that I can build my life without any doubt, things that I know that aren't going to be, you know, thwarted by circumstances or by people, that we we really do long for that. Now to complicate matters further is really the amount of information that is accessible to us. I'm going to read you a quote and then you won't believe who said it and at what time. When there is so much to be known, when there are so many fields of knowledge in which the same words are used with different meanings, when everyone knows a little about a great many things, it becomes increasingly difficult for anyone to know whether he believes what he's talking about or not. Um, You say, well, that was T.S. Eliot over 100 years ago. What he's saying is there's so much information out there. We've got so many people that know a little bit about a lot because of, in our day, social media, that we're using the same words. We're talking past each other. Nobody knows what the heck they're talking about, which is part of our problem. And so we're left kind of tossed around on the sea to saying, you know, you know where's truth? You know, think of King Lear, Shakespeare's King Lear. It's a bit like, can anybody tell me who I am? That we don't want truth. We don't want to be boxed in. And yet, deep down... We want to know if there's a way forward, a place to build our lives. Now, Pilate's question, look again verse 38, very famous part of the Bible that Jesus says, I've come to bear witness to the truth, and the things that I speak are the source of that truth. Now, Pilate asked the question, what is truth? And it's a very relevant question, but we want to say, well, in what way did he mean that? Some think that he's becoming very philosophical here, which in Pilate's own period or long before Pilate, you know, this is something the Greek philosophers did, that they would sit around and say, you know, what is truth? But it would be odd, I think, for Pilate to be philosophical at this point. He could just say, you know, does he mean it in the sense of like, what, what, are, you ta- what are you possibly talking about? You're such an unimpressive person, Jesus. Um, you know, what, what do you know about truth? Is he saying it that way? Or more likely, if I had my guess... I'll tell you why, I I think he's just so tired of this kind of thing that this is so not the conversation that he wants to have. You know, what is truth, throwing up his arms? And I say, I I think that interpretation, kind of the the burnout, you know, this is not the conversation, we we can't possibly have this conversation, is because he turns and walks away. You know, what's truth? And he forgets about it, he walks away. And if that's the case, then Pilate's very much like our neighbor, our non-believing neighbor. You know, say, well, here's the truth claims. Everybody's making claims. There's so many voices in the air. How can I find my way? What, the, what in the world is truth? I can't be bothered with it. But Jesus once again talks an awful lot about this. So, for example, John, again, earlier in this gospel, you know this verse, he tells his followers, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I say, so maybe today you're, you're bouncing around on the waves of life, you know, it's Christmas time, you just kind of feel like, man, this, you know, this vortex of the last four weeks, and here we go again, and all the materialism, and what do I have to look forward to in the next year, and I feel kind of empty inside, and where do I find my, where do I put my energies? Well, here's a very clear testimony to where every human should be. Um, he focused on, and that is a life of abiding with Jesus. He says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You want to make your, meet your, be, be right terms with your maker, be reconciled to him, you come through Jesus. Now, importantly, in what I just read, it's not just that Jesus claims to know the truth, though he, though he does. It's not just, a, you know, kind of content, uh, content transfer. We think of truth that way. So, here's the lecture, now you've got the truth. It's not that. He's saying in, in who he is, that as you would know him, that he embodies the truth. And that's the way Christians talk. You know, Real Christians will say, well actually, when I surrender to Jesus, I got to know Jesus because he's alive. We talk about having a relationship with him. It's not that Jesus is ultimately, though he does, give us the content of how to conduct our lives, but when we yoke ourselves to him, when we abide with him, when we listen to his voice and he steers us, that we find our lives uh, walking on, on, on firm soil and the path of truth. So that's uh, point number one today. Jesus says, I came to bear witness to the truth, and my voice is the truth. And every person on Christmas Day should know where truth is, that it can be found, that it's not from a mere person, but it comes from the Lord Jesus himself, and in that, we'll see, there's going to be a great deal of comfort. Now, Jesus links truth. Point number two, truth is a real thing. It can be found. Secondly, Jesus links truth. This is very profound, I think, he always links truth with a lifestyle of obedience. That again, truth is not just knowing the right things, but it's living out those things in the world. You know, I talk about these things many years ago at a university, and somebody came up to me, and they said, well, you know, it's very interesting about truth and, and exclusivity, and we all kind of need truths, and, and I'll never forget the young person said, well, you know, people are not on a truth quest, they are on a pleasure quest. I've never forgotten that, I said, I think that's true. People are not on a truth quest, that we don't go around saying, you know, where's the truth, so much as we say, "Um, I wanna feel good, and I'm gonna do what feels good. And I've given this a great deal of thought over the years to say, what's the relationship between truth and pleasure? Because there is one, and I went back to these passages, and I think, well, Jesus got it right here, because we act on the things we think to be true whatever our principles are in life, say if, if pleasure is our highest good, then we conduct our affairs based on, on that um, mechanism, or you could say that, that kind of mental apparatus in a way, say truth is my highest good, that, that is your truth, then you behave in such a way where that is uh, how you, you live in the world. So the real question then is, is every pleasure legitimate? And I think we know the answer to that. Say there are legitimate pleasures that God has filled this world. We read a few moments ago, he came to give us life and give it abundantly. Say the world is filled with legitimate pleasures, things that God says these are good things that are enjoyable for you, that you don't feel guilty for doing, that are within my good plan, and when you do them, you flourish. But we also know there are illegitimate pleasures. That there are things that we can do that feel good in the moment that we've bought into a kind of platonic dualism, say, well, it feels good for my body for a moment, but then down the road that I begin to have consequences for how I've conducted my life, that I do believe illegitimate pleasure, is, is, is a serious category. So you get how we get here. Jesus is saying, look, truth is found in my voice. Whoever listens to my voice, say every Christian saying, well, this is living your life like Jesus and obeying him, that this is the person who's really found life. Now, others of us say, well, pleasure is my highest good. Then I conduct my affairs looking for pleasure. And if there are illegitimate pleasures, then I box myself in and quickly become enslaved. See, those who become Christians will often talk this way. They'll say, well, when I went through life and I was just indulging my appetites, you know, just kind of out doing my own thing, I found that I was quickly boxed in by my very own principles. Um, you know, if you're interested in this kind of thing, the best, the best book I know of that talks a lot about this is Paul Johnson's Intellectuals. If you, if you know, it's a fantastic book. It's, what it really is is a series of you know, 15 or so little biographies of famous people. And while they made serious intellectual contributions, hence the title, intellectuals, their personal lives were an absolute mess. The way they treated their loved ones, the way they handled their finances, the way even their personal hygiene was, they couldn't keep it together. Just this week, I was reading about F. Scott Fitzgerald. You say, F. Scott Fitzgerald, he said, well, one of the great American novelists, you know, gave us The Great Gatsby. You know, Fitzgerald died at age 44, Uh, His life was uh, absolutely destroyed by his alcoholism. Uh, The people in his life seemed to loathe him. He just could not get his life on track. So here's a guy who we associate with the jazz age, kind of being everything that America's about. But personally, he's boxed in and really did not on those who knew him best, leave a very good mark. And I say, this is exactly what happens to us when we say, look, I'm on a pleasure quest. My highest good's to feel good in this life. Whatever God has to do in my life is to make me happy. And we don't listen to any of the voices or the voice we should be listening to, that we plow down that path and we find ourselves boxed in and enslaved and depressed. And so Jesus, and I'll point out this too since we have time, In John chapter 18, where where I've been reading, if you just go back a little bit, I think this is a little bit what happens to these Jewish leaders. This is, uh, you see the irony. I think John's passion narrative is loaded with irony. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning, so here they're taking out their Messiah to be executed. They want to kill Jesus. But they themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled. You see, this is with the kind of irony, I think John's telling his story, where, you, you know, you just have to kind of smile at this. So here you've got all the, the leading Jewish experts. They're marching the greatest human ever, right? They're Messiah. They want to kill him, but they won't go into Pilate's house because they're worried about purity laws that they've been boxed in by their own principles, that they, they've made a mess of their life. They've not listened to the, the real voice of God in this. That's a little bit in a microcosm of what happens to each one of us. So we plow through our, our, our own way, listening to whoever we find our slaves self-enslaved. And that's why Jesus, again, in this gospel, earlier, John chapter eight and verse 31, gives us another, another famous verse. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. It's got three things linked there. The voice of Jesus, truth, and freedom. Say, So many people, think of all the people you know, they don't put those three things together. They think, well, the voice of Jesus, you know, that religious stuff is going to make me miserable. And I want to be free and do my own thing. What I'm trying to say is we've that kind of mentality has a completely opposite. We do our own thing, we find ourselves enslaved, hurting others. When we listen to the voice of Jesus, when we really follow him and abide in him and do life on his terms, that's where we find real freedom and flourishing. You know, something that now that I'm, I'm a 38 year old clergyman, you know, for 38 I've, you know, been a clergyman a long time, so you can start to talk this way, but in all the times that I've met people and their lives are going, it's very interesting to be, a you know, lives are going this way and that way. I've met many people, you know, various places, who've said, you know, if I had followed Jesus earlier in my life and really abided in him, I would have saved myself so much pain and I would have saved my loved ones so much pain. You know what I've never heard? What I've never heard from interacting with Christians, those who've walked with Jesus 60, 70 years, they never say, you know, I wish I didn't listen to Jesus. I wish I would have done my own thing a little bit more. Those who know him say he's never led me astray. That when I do life, as he would want me to do it, as I listen to him and abide with him and realize that he's the truth, that's where I feel free, that my relationships are right, that my work life is right, that you get that first button right on your shirt. That is a relationship with the Lord Jesus. All the other buttons line up. So I guess what we see here, a couple of things again. Review the big points. There's such a thing as truth and it can be found. It's found in a relationship with the Lord Jesus. He came, to give this relationship to us. He came so that we would find our way. Secondly, Jesus links truth with a lifestyle. And pleasure, insofar as we're all to a degree driven by pleasure, ultimately is linked with what we think to be true in the world because that's how we behave. Not all truths are equal and not all pleasures are equal. Jesus is saying there are legitimate pleasures that come by listening to my voice and when you listen to my voice, you will experience real freedom And real joy. Third point, and I'll leave leave you with this, but I I think this passage might even be less about truth and more about the nature of Jesus' kingdom. You see a lot, uh, what's he saying here? Do you think, Pilate, are you threatened? Are these Jewish elites and the Roman? do you think Jesus is going to raise up a military? He's going to issue a a new system of taxation that's going to compete with your system of taxation? Um, He's saying no. It's not to say Christians aren't concerned about being active in the political world, of course we are. But what he's saying is, if, if that was my game, you see, what he, if, that, if that was my game, I wouldn't be here. Because as the Son of God, like Proverbs 21 says, that he controls the leaders, you know, ne- the wrong person's never been elected. I know I would say that, yeah, people are surprised. The wrong person's never been elected because God controls them like a water course in his hand. And Jesus is saying, do you think that I'd really be standing here before you, Pilate, if this wasn't the will of God? But it is the will of God. And Pilate, you're only able to say these things because God is permitting you to do so, is effectively what he's saying. But the kingdom that I've come to establish is that in the hearts and minds of my people. That what Jesus is really about is buying back a people for himself that's going to be established once again by his word. If you go back just a chapter, John 17 and verse 17. Jesus says, sanctify them, set apart a people. That's what sanctify means. Set apart a people for me. Sanctify in the truth. Your word, that is God's word, is truth. That the word of God is what establishes and builds the people of God and we constantly need to revisit this. You say, why is he talking about this on Christmas? Because the church so easily gets bumped off track onto the wrong things, onto social causes, and onto to, to charity, We all good things. They're all good things. But the primary need, what is Jesus really saying here? The primary need in the life of every person is spiritual. It's about comprehending the nature of sin, of who we are before God and what Jesus has come to do, which is to give us new birth, to give us new hearts so that we might live for him, and then go on to live lives of obedience and good deeds. That's the gospel. That is why uh, we're celebrating Christmas today, that Jesus came to buy back sinners, not to give us all these different social works to do. You know, it reminded me of a story um, Luther's last sermon, the, Re- the Reformer. Maybe I've shared it with you before because I say it a lot. But Luther didn't know it was going to be his last sermon, of course. He didn't know he was going to die. But he's talking to a lot of you know, Roman Catholics or reform- just new, uh, you know, I guess mo- mainly in the Roman church. And this topic of truth and really power is the theme of his sermon. He's saying, look, you're, you're looking for truth and power in all the wrong places. You're going on pilgrimages, and you're, you know, you're, you're going to all these religious festivals. And he says, God tells us where the power is. It's in his word. See, I love the way Luther went out with that one because I think that's in many ways his life mission. How's God build his church? Why does everything we do at Providence Church, nothing competes with scripture? Say, we do children's ministry all the way up. It's always focused on scripture. How does God build his church? Through his word. We preach his word. We all sit under it. How do we grow personally? By being under his word. So friends, on this Christmas Day... I do pray for those of us who are Christians, you know, never to be shy about truth claims because I think of that strange relationship your friends have. Say We don't want truth, but deep down, they might very well want truth because it is a place of security and we all need that stability and security. Truth can be found. It's found in the voice of Jesus that far from being enslaving, actually listening to Jesus and obeying him and living that out is a life of real freedom and real joy. And that as we tuck into him, as we proclaim the name of Jesus and lift him up and think about the nature of his kingdom, realizing that the real need in the world, the person that frustrates you the most, the politician that frustrates you the most, my guess is the real problem is spiritual. The real problem is a need for a personal relationship with Jesus who will make us right and infuse us with his power by means of the Spirit. Now, if you're not a Christian today, glad you're here, came with your family Christmas morning, you know, the pageantry, and, and so what. And you're looking out at the world, so maybe you feel a little bit like those people in, in Johnson's intellectuals. It's like, well, I'm making decent enough contributions to the world, but inside I'm all locked up. I need to try something new. I'm just, something's a bit off. You say, well, today, you read, thanks to Pilate, thanks to Pilate's questioning, you see the way home. A life, a personal relationship with Jesus, listening to his voice, where there is freedom and joy and life. And you too, you know, just this very day, you could say, Lord, I do. I need you. I need Jesus in my life. I can't do this on my own. I feel that I am a sinner. Like we said in the catechism, that I've fallen short of God, that I'm a lawless person. I've not paid attention to you, and I come to Jesus as my Lord and Savior. May this be a Christmas really to remember for you as you would surrender to Christ for the first time. So church family, this is the last. It's not only Christmas Day but it is the last Sunday of 2022, so key takeaway, Jesus is building his kingdom. He's building his kingdom on his word, which is the truth that will give us joy and peace and freedom, and we will always stick to that. So I'll pray before our final Christmas hymn. Lord, thank you for being so clear about why you came. You came to serve, that is to minister, to give your life as a ransom for many. You came to give life and give it abundantly. You came to really divide the world into those who believe and those who don't. And Lord, as we focus today, that you came to bear witness to the truth, to give us your word so that we might be free and might be set right with you. For all those in the room, as we would wind down um, this year as uh, really a church, and think about Christmas all in one, that we would say, yeah, you build your, word, your church through your word, that this is what we have, and help us to be mindful of what our mission is, that um, you're building a spiritual kingdom, and our real need is a personal relationship with Jesus. So, Lord, we rejoice in you. Thank you for coming, in the baby in the manger, so accessible, to die the death that we deserve, to be raised from the dead, to give us hope that you now sit on high and for us. So, we praise you, and we thank you, in Christ's name. Amen.